Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Concluding our series today, The Story of the Bible, what could be more exciting than to focus on the book of Revelation with Dr. Neufeld's message entitled, The Consummation of All Things. In some ways, if the book of Revelation were not in our Bible, the Bible's plotline would remain remarkably the same as it is. See, the Bible is filled with references to the consummation of all things, and the New Testament is filled with references to the second coming of Jesus. I mean, consider, for instance, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There we have the consummation of all things. Or consider the words of Isaiah 66, verses 17 to 19. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Or consider Isaiah 11 verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And so the Old Testament is filled with references. The purposes for which God created the world will be realized through the king who will reign and in the city of Jerusalem. Now, in the New Testament, that king is revealed, and he is Jesus. And as we have seen in a twist in the plot line, Jesus brings in the kingdom in a two-step process. First, he brings the kingdom in with grace, promising a period of blessing to all who might come to him. The new has come, but the old remains for a while. And still, Jesus promises everything the Old Testament hoped for. There will be an end of the age and a consummation of all things. In essence, I've already made the point that the entire New Testament celebrates that the kingdom has already arrived, and yet it still awaits its final consummation. Consider, for instance, Jesus' words in John 5:24: Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, I hope you heard that. As soon as you believe in Jesus and enter into his kingdom, the transfer has been made from death to life. You've entered into the great end-time realm. The kingdom is yours. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul states that Christ has already delivered us from this present evil age according to the will of the Father. And yet, Christ taught us to pray, your kingdom come, with a deep sense of longing. And even though 2 Corinthians 5.17 teaches us that when anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come, we also know that in the very next chapter of that book, Paul speaks of endurance and afflictions in this present evil age. Both of these realities are a part and parcel of the central message of the New Testament. I agree with Fred Zaspel that a great many of the errors we make when we talk about the end times come from one of two extremes. On the one hand, one extreme is what he calls over-literalized eschatology. That means we see all of the promises of the future as being yet in the future. 
promises of a new heart, the the promise of deliverance from evil. I mean, I could go on and on. So whenever I'm asked if I believe that we're living in the end times, my answer is, well, of course we are. Ever since the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto us at Pentecost, we are in the end times and more. We are living in the kingdom, having already passed from death to life. But on the other hand, The opposite extreme of over-literalized eschatology is what Zaspel calls over-realized eschatology. That means that for some, all the future promises, those of healing and deliverance from enemies and from victory over sin and death, well, they're all right now. If I could add my own footnote to this thought, I've, I've often been in conflict with believers who tell me I was once a sinner, but now I'm saved by grace, as if sin had already been completely vanquished entirely from their lives. So how do we say this? Well, right now, anyone who believes has already received a new heart and has entered into the kingdom, and the old era has already passed away. Yet right now, anyone who believes also knows they struggle with sin and fight the influences of this world that seems so much to be still alive. We live in an overlap of two ages. The new has come, but the old remains. And yet, the New Testament is filled with promises that this unique era won't always be the way it is. In Acts 1.11, at the ascension of Jesus, two men stand among the disciples and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, Jesus taught that he would come again and ultimately defeat this present sinful era. Matthew chapters 24 to 25 is an extended teaching on that subject. In chapter 25, verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There it is. He'll sit on David's ancient throne, and the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah spoke of, Jesus confirmed that he is, in fact, that king. Or consider 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end, when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That chapter then gives an extensive treatment of our own hope, the reality of our own bodily resurrection. Listen to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. We could go on to consider 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with a voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Then from 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. And then that passage gives an extensive treatment of the man of lawlessness. That is the coming of the Antichrist. See, the point I'm trying to make is that the New Testament, without the book of Revelation, is quite nuanced. On the one hand, according to the book of Colossians, we are already raised and seated with Christ. And yet, on the other hand, we await the second coming of Christ when we will be raised and seated with Christ. Both statements are true, and both statements are fully explained. The kingdom has come. And we await its final consummation and the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. 
in many ways. If the book of Revelation were not in our Bible, we would still get the entire storyline of the whole Bible. God will reign over this whole earth, and his subjects will reign with him under the leadership of his appointed Christ, who will reconcile all things to the Father. The story, as it were, has been told by the time we read the end of the book of Jude. But in truth, the story has not been summed up properly until we come to the book of Revelation. See, Revelation is an amazing book filled with allusions from the Old Testament, and it skillfully weaves these stories together into the revelation of Jesus, and it helps us to do three things. It tells us how we are to live in the present hour. Second, it tells us to live with expectation, for our Lord is indeed returning. And third, in this one book, in case we missed it, it weaves together the grand narrative of the whole Bible and helps us to say, yes, yes, that's the grand story from front to back. So where do we begin? I think we begin by simply noticing what is expressed at the very beginning of the last book of our Bible. All the apostles have now died with the exception of one. He was the youngest of the apostolic team, and his name was John. He has been exiled on a small island just off the coast of what is now Turkey. The Roman emperor Domitian insisted on being called Lord and God and would soon unleash horrible persecution against the infant church of Jesus Christ. Since John could not call the emperor Lord and God, for only Jesus the true king deserves such a title. He's placed in banishment on a desolate island of Patmos. From there, in the face of promises that Jesus is Lord over all, and in the face of an emperor who thought he could prove to the church that Jesus was not Lord, we find the drama that would give rise to this book. As John is worshiping in his exile, Jesus himself, the real Lord and God, appears. What he would say to John would help the church of Jesus Christ to take great hope and to understand how to live in this peculiar overlap of two ages. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Neufeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and, and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Anyone reading the book of Revelation is immediately faced with glorious and frightening images that seem to leave us with a question. How should we understand this book? But like all other books in the Bible, we do well to understand it by paying attention to who are the recipients. For instance, let's say we're studying the book of Philippians. Before we dive right in and apply it, most of us have already been taught that the first step is to understand who the book was written to, 
what it would have meant to them, and then after that, we're in a position to apply the book to our own lives. I mean, almost everyone who has been taught to do responsible Bible study understands that process. In that sense, the book of Revelation is no different. The book begins by explaining how this writing came about. John is in exile on Patmos. Jesus visits him in all his glory and announces that he's coming again and that every eye will see him. While the righteous will rejoice, the wicked will wail on account of him. And with that, Jesus announces to John that he has a message to give. Now, before going any further, anyone who reads and rereads the book of Revelation will notice that even while there are things that might be difficult to understand, yet the structure of the book is actually quite straightforward. What we actually find in Revelation is a series of four sevens. There are letters to seven churches, then there are seven seals, then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. These four series of sevens are interrupted by several interludes. Then after having been presented the four sevens, the book then moves to the judgment of Babylon and then the final triumph of Christ and then the consummation of all things with the advent of the kingdom and the descent of the heavenly Jerusalem to earth. Now, obviously, in the time remaining, we can't possibly look at all the details, but I want to bring a number of things to mind. The numbers that are found in Revelation are no accident. The number four is often thought by Bible students to speak of creation, and therefore, since the book can easily be divided into four visions that John saw, one might say that the entire book is intended to review for us the movement from God's original creation to his new creation. And the number seven, a number that's also prominent in the book, Throughout the Bible, sevens are found everywhere. God creates the world in six days, and he rests on the seventh, and hence, seven is the number of his completed work. Now, keep the idea of four representing God's creative work and seven representing God's completed work. Keep both of those ideas together. Now, we then notice that after the introduction, we are introduced to the recipients of the book. The book is addressed to seven churches in Asia or in our terms, seven churches in the nation of Turkey today. Anyone who gets out a map to discover where those churches actually were will find that they existed in a kind of a circle. So if you were to carry the book of Revelation to the seven churches that are addressed, you would naturally follow a trade route that would start in Ephesus, then go up to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and lastly, Laodicea, and then realize that you have gone in a large circle, you have traveled geographically. So let's understand at the outset that these were real historical churches. If we just consider the first one, that of Ephesus, we might remember that in Acts 19, Paul's ministry there, along with the description of the temple of Artemis in that city, and a silversmith who made idols by the name of Demetrius, and the riot he inspired against Paul and his missionary team. We remember Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We remember that later Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct false teachers that were among the elders, and so forth. That's why the idea that these seven churches represent seven eras of church history, well, that's just wrong. These are not seven symbolic churches. They are seven real churches in real cities with real people and leaders and churches who would have had the book of Revelations read to them. 
Now, many Bible teachers have wondered why only these seven churches were addressed and not more, and here I think the answer has to do with the number seven. Since seven is a symbolic number that represents God's completed work, the words that Christ spoke to these seven churches should not just be taken to heart by those seven churches, but they should be taken to heart by all churches for their triumphs and failures and the places where Christ commends them and the places where he condemns them are exemplary of his dealings with all his churches. Now, these seven churches were in a fight for their lives. The Roman emperor Domitian had declared himself to be the Son of God, and he demanded that all his citizens refer to him as Lord and God. And so these churches had to strengthen themselves and listen to the real Lord and God as he gave commands to each. And then we come to Revelation 4, and there the scene changes. John says he looked and saw a door standing open in heaven. It's not a reference to the rapture, for no such event is indicated in the text. Rather, John is being invited to change his perspective from the struggle of these seven churches to the sovereignty and majesty of God. John is taken to the very throne room of God, and and some of the images there sound so much like some of the images read throughout the Old Testament. For instance, the four living creatures are very similar to the visions that are seen by both Isaiah and Ezekiel. And then in chapter 5, all the splendor of heaven now concentrates on one scroll. The scroll is rolled up with seven seals. And again, we find images from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 29 and, and Daniel chapter 12. But that being put aside, one thing seems clear. The scroll contains the consummation of all God's plans since the creation, both for judgment and redemption. The scroll is the outworking of God's plans for the world. But who can break the seals and open the scroll, or who can ultimately reveal what God is up to, and who can execute the plans of God? And then John sees the Lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a reference to David's kingly office. And he is told, the root of David has conquered. And again, the reference is to the royal line that Isaiah describes. And then as John looks for the lion, he sees a lamb that has been slaughtered. The slaughtered lamb is the lion and he alone can execute the plans of God for the whole world. This, of course, is Jesus. And as each seal is broken, a grand narrative begins to take shape from from wars to persecution and so forth. And the real question that we should be asking is this. What did this mean to the seven churches who read it? And the answer must be that they came to see that they were not only locked in a battle with a powerful Roman government, but in a cosmic battle with evil and Satan and demonic powers. But they need not fear, for the Lamb who was slain was in fact in charge, and he was breaking out the eternal plans of God. Jesus, the real Lord and God, is in control. Now, as we read Revelation, we are left to ponder, what am I reading? Is the great prostitute of Babylon, the Roman Empire, is the false prophet and the beast, the the menacing Christ-despising government of Rome that's getting drunk on the blood of the saints? Or are we talking about some great end-time event in the future, the revealing of Antichrist and the second coming of Christ? I think the answer is we're actually reading both. The great struggle that these churches found themselves in was so much greater than themselves. They were a part of a grand narrative, a grand storyline of history. 
And because they are seven churches, their struggle is like the struggle of the entire church of God to the very end of the age. So when we read Revelation, we see that the struggle that the church is engaged in is actually leading somewhere. Babylon, that God-hating city, which has been there from the beginning of the age, which is there in every age in which God's people live their lives, and it was certainly there in Rome, Babylon will become exceedingly wicked in the end of time. But Jesus, who is the Christ, who has been since the very beginning reconciling the world to himself, will overthrow Babylon the Great, and the city that has corrupted the nations of the earth will forever be brought down. And then in the final day, Jesus himself will appear on a white horse, and he will strike down the nations, and the end, the dead will all stand before him. Blessed are those whose robes are washed and belong to the crucified and slaughtered Lamb, who is both King of kings and Lord of lords. I love how Revelation 21 begins. John, repeating the words of Isaiah, says, I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You know, in the ancient world, the sea represented an uncrossable barrier. But in John's last vision, the uncrossable barrier between earth, which is the dwelling place of men, and heaven, which is the dwelling place of God, is wiped away. And then all of the divine narrative of God creating all things for his glory and a humanity made for himself to rule with him forever is accomplished by the Christ who is Jesus. Hallelujah. Even so, come Lord Jesus. John, the whole book of Revelation in one message. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) What do you think it is that we don't hear many messages from the pulpit on the book of Revelation? What is it that, that holds us back from doing that or pastors back from doing that? Yeah, those of our older readers will remember that we used to hear about it a lot. And, and in, the, in the last number of years, we've stopped hearing about it. And I think that one of the reasons is, first of all, that there have been so many disagreements about the book of Revelation. And secondly, I would argue that a great many pastors have never taken a course in the book of Revelation and wouldn't even know how to begin with it. But I am convinced that the more time that we spend in it, the more encouraged we will be because There's something that that book does in drawing together the entire biblical revelation and placing Christ at the center and at the head of everything that we read that should so encourage us to study it more, not less. That's fantastic. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you as we extend an invitation to journey with us for the Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's Royal Palace. Visit the Garden Tomb and and sail the Sea of Galilee as we worship together. Enjoy on-location Bible teaching with Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged in sharing the laughter with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway. Experience all Israel has to offer with an intimate group of Christian friends. 
Don't miss this wonderful limited registration opportunity to visit the Holy Land and be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.